The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, James Shrupper, and on this episode, I'm joined by our regular guest, Father Anthony Chicada from St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, it's so good for you to join us again tonight. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to be here, and uh, some people would tell you, Father Chicada can't resist a good controversy. <laughs> Father, you seem to live in controversy. Uh, I, I think that the, that's one of the problems of our age, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, on this episode tonight, uh, we're going to be discussing the Sovereign Military Order of St. John of Jerusalem, also simply known as the OSJ. And the title of this episode is In the Shadows Behind the Mask of the OSJ. So, Father, just to begin with, um, when I was looking at any scholarly paper, I flipped to your footnotes first. Uh, this is based off an article written for the Roman Catholic in 1981, I believe, so 30-some years ago already. And I noticed you had 132 footnotes, almost more footnotes than you did typing for the article. <laughs> well, it, it was... Um... Uh, quite a story, and it was uh, necessary to do an awful lot of research uh, for an article on the OSJ because of uh, the different claims that it uh, that it had made. Uh, very broad and very astounding claims, actually. To give you a little background about what prompted me to look into this issue. Uh, the underlying question is one that's come up in these shows on Catholic controversies before, and that's uh, come up in, in articles that we've discussed on, on our website and, and uh, films and restoration radio broadcasts. The question of jurisdiction and how in the face of the disaster that followed from the Second Vatican Council, Catholics who wanted to preserve the faith were supposed to proceed. So this was uh, quite an issue, really, from the beginning in the 1960s. There were, in different parts of the United States, priests who realized that there was something wrong with the Vatican II changes, particularly with the liturgical changes, uh, the new Mass of Paul VI in 1969. 
they regarded it as a rite that was Protestant and and uh, that was modernist. And these priests were approached by members of the laity to say mass. Uh, for them. Father, can you come and say Mass for me? We are upset with the uh, changes in the Church. We would still like uh, a good priest like yourself to come and say the Old Mass. So, uh, in the 60s and and 70s, uh, the priests who were doing this, who were resisting the changes, were raised obviously in the old school, studied in the old seminaries, and uh, they had the ideas, uh, the idea drummed into them, the very good idea, that the church, Catholic Church, operates according to uh, certain laws, and that a good priest follows the laws of the church, and that he conducts his ministry in accordance with uh, these different laws. The one point always, especially for diocesan priests, was the question of your promise of obedience and your submission to the diocesan bishop, that you, you um, uh, signed an oath and a promise to that effect, and in the ordination ceremony, you, promised, uh, you made a, a promise of uh, obedience to him, and you put uh, your hands inside his hands, and he said, will you promise me and my successor's obedience and reverence? And you said, permit, oh, I do. So these older priests were very conscious of the law of the church. So they had that on one side. On the other side, they had this revolutionary change uh, that they knew was not Catholic. So they wanted to find a way to reconcile uh, the ministry they wanted to perform, which was to preserve the traditional Mass and to preserve traditional Catholic teaching, reconcile that with the idea of the law of the Church and authority and jurisdiction. So you had, uh, from the beginning, uh, different uh, people coming up, different priests coming up with uh, different theories about uh, how best to do this, and admittedly, it was a, a confusing time because of the, Vatican II produced this cataclysmic event in the uh, Church. One of the solutions to this question of jurisdiction that people at the beginning of the traditionalist movement in the United States uh, uh, saw as a viable way of taking care of this jurisdiction uh, question was the organization that we're going to talk about uh, tonight, the um, OSJ, the Knights of St. John, also called, uh, they also call themselves the uh, Sovereign Order of St. John of Jerusalem or the Knights of Malta. In the beginning in the traditional movement, um, this group was uh, rather uh, visible and um, the, the, some of the priests who would uh, offer Mass under the auspices of this group would advertise themselves as uh, belonging to it. Uh, the uh, proto-trad publisher in the uh, United States was uh, Tom Nelson of, of Tan Books in Rockford, Illinois, and uh, Tom was a, a, a member of uh, this organization. One of the uh, proto-trad priests in the United States, another one, was Father James Wathen. 
And Father Wathen wrote the uh, first book in English uh, that was a critique of the new mass, and that was called The Great Sacrilege, and uh, really, a, really a great title. And Tom Nelson at TAM uh, published it. And so uh, you uh, had this organization, the um, Knights of Malta, the OSJ, uh, sponsoring masses in uh, different uh, parts of the United States. And some priests saw this as uh, an answer to their prayers as regard the question of jurisdiction. They could say that I belong to this, this order which has certain privileges, and uh, therefore I don't have to listen to the diocesan bishop who says that um, you, Father X, you have to stop saying Mass. In fact, one of the, so, in addition uh, to F- Father James Wathen, perhaps the proto-trad of proto-trad priests in the United States, uh, was Father Gomer de Paul. I remember him objecting to the changes uh, in 1964 when I was in eighth grade, and uh, he actually joined this organization for a while. So uh, uh, that gives you a little bit of the the uh, context of um, uh, uh, why uh, this organization became somewhat prominent in the traditionalist movement, and also why it was a, um, uh, it uh, attracted my attention and it attracted my interest. So, Father, if I'm understanding this correctly, these priests turned to this order, which would be a, a Catholic order similar to uh, the Franciscans or the Dominicans, to receive their jurisdiction from that order rather than their local diocesan bishop. Uh, that was the uh, that was the idea. That was the idea that the OSJ sold them on. That if you um, join this particular order, you don't have to worry about your diocesan bishop anymore. He doesn't have any jurisdiction over you. We uh, the, the 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 officials of this this order have uh, jurisdiction over you now. So you have you have nothing to worry about. Did you have any personal experience with any, either Father Wathen, uh, Father Gomer de Paul, or uh, Tom Nelson, or other clergy that were members of the OSJ, or did you have any individuals that were going to this order? Well, their- uh, at, uh, uh, I didn't meet um, a cast of characters until a little bit uh, later on. Uh, only much later did I, I meet Father Wathen, but of course I had read his book. I had heard about him, and I had seen the uh, OSJ uh, advertised in um, uh, different uh, traditionalist um, uh, publications, and, and I had seen their masses advertised. They would refer to their um, uh, chapels as, as uh, the priory which is, is a name that's used normally for a uh, religious house. So I would come across uh, uh, this actually um, quite a bit. And at a certain point uh, as well, uh, you started to read uh, in uh, traditionalist publications like The uh, the Remnant and uh, Patrick Henry Omler's uh, publication, Interdom, um, articles questioning the different aspects and different claims that were made by this organization. So that, that was my, uh, my exposure to it. 
And uh, I had, uh, as, a, as a priest, I was first at, in uh, Armada, Michigan, uh, in 1977 and 1978. In 79, I, I moved to Oyster Bay. There's no ac- um, uh, activity by the OSJ in um, Michigan, but uh, on uh, Long Island, from Long Island, I went to a number of uh, places in different parts of the country where uh, there were mass centers that were uh, affiliated in one way or another with the OSJ. So once these questions about the OSJ started to surface from different people, uh, obviously the internet really wasn't invented or readily available, so you couldn't just type it into Google. So yeah, Father, when, when, uh, Al Gore had not invented the internet yet, so there we go. We, we would uh, we would have, we would still have to wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Father, when you got questions like this on a topic back thirty some years ago, what did you have to do to find source material to reference to answer these questions that were coming up? Well, as I mentioned this before, it involved trips. Trips to libraries and uh, well, libraries. What are those? Had, uh, <laughs> I'm from the generation. You probably they, have they, to explain. Uh, it. I think they, I got they, a faint memory. They have have this these this um, collections of uh, bits of dead trees with little markings on them. <laughs> so um, you, you would well, uh, there you go. go to why Al Gore invited the internet because he was to save these trees to stop global warming. So yes, that's, now we have that's, that's right. So so it comes full circle, right? So um, yeah. what, what you would have to do is um, physically you would uh, drag yourself over to a library, and then to research anything, uh, boys and girls, if you are listening, uh, you would go to something that was called a card catalog. Uh, that had um, uh, index cards in it with typing on them. And these uh, books, uh, these listed the books, and there was one uh, collection of uh, cards in every library that was by author, another by book title, and another by topic. And so uh, you would have to um, often have some sort of an idea of uh, the title of a book uh, in order to find uh, information on a particular topic. And if it did not exist in that library, well, then you'd have to go to another library to find out about it. So it was <laughs> it was quite an adventure. Uh, and the difficulty uh, in those days in, in obtaining information was you never knew what you would find in a library if it had anything on the particular topic that you were discussing, or if it had a book that you wanted, you would have to uh, call a library or physically go over to visit it. So uh, the difficulty was, while uh, you certainly could um, research uh, more general topics, let us say, in canon law and in uh, church history, uh, in uh, Catholic university and seminary libraries, uh, it was very difficult to find uh, information on an obscure, on what was essentially an obscure topic, such as the um, 
uh, question of uh, the uh, this Order of St. John, uh, this uh, traditionalist organization in the United States, they made these fantastic claims about um, their legal rights and how they had been um, uh, f- they, they were patronized by the czars of Russia, and uh, there were all these papal bulls that were backing up their legitimacy, and they had gotten this approval and that approval, uh, and. Uh, uh, this document proved their existence and, and that document. So these were all relatively obscure topics. So to get to the bottom of uh, this question, I had to go to uh, a whole load of libraries in, in uh, the Middle West and on the East Coast to find out uh, information uh, about the history of um, this um, uh, this organization and to to uh, verify its claims, I hit the jackpot uh, at Catholic University in Washington. I'm not uh, sure exactly how I uh, got put onto the Catholic University for their uh, section on the Knights of Malta, but uh, I went down there and I, I uh, spent some time at. Uh, the Catholic University Library, and it turned out that up in the attic, uh, in a, a very dusty part of, of uh, one of the buildings, they had uh, s- several ranks of bookshelves that were dedicated exclusively to books about the Knights of Malta. Uh, by the Knights of Malta, I mean the uh, organization uh, that uh, was officially recognized as a religious order by the Catholic Church during the Crusades. So it, it, uh, uh, there were uh, many, many very interesting books uh, that dealt with the history, the history of the uh, order in general, and uh, that also uh, discussed two specific issues that I wanted to find out more about. One was the history of uh, the Order of St. John, uh, recognized by the Catholic Church, the, uh, the one that was recognized by the Catholic Church in Russia. Because one of the claims of uh, this uh, American organization was that somehow they derived their legitimacy as a part of the Knights of Malta through Russia. So this was a a somewhat obscure topic, but it turned out that the Catholic University had uh, quite a bit on that. The other issue that interested me is I wanted to find out what exactly the order that was recognized by the Catholic Church had to say about these uh, other groups that also claimed to be the Knights of Malta. I had uh, discovered that uh, there was not only this this uh, American group headquartered in Pennsylvania that claimed to be the legitimate Knights of Malta, but that there were other entities scattered throughout the United States uh, that claimed to be Knights of, of Malta as well. So apparently this was, was a fairly uh, common 
uh, claim for certain types of fraternal organizations, and uh, often there was a, a Masonic uh, connection in uh, one way or another, because, of course, the, the 19th century in the United States was the great age of, of where Masonry uh, really uh, flourished, and a number of these outfits claim to have connections with the uh, Knights of Malta, especially the Knights of Malta in Jerusalem. So in any event, I uh, spent a, a couple of days uh, slogging through the information in uh, the Catholic University and uh, taking uh, notes. Photocopying material was, uh, of course, <laughs> Uh, technically much, much more difficult uh, in those days as well. It was difficult to get good photocopies of of material that you wanted. Uh, I was was put on to the um, names of some some books that I actually was uh, able to order so I could have uh, full copies of my own. Some of the material I was able to borrow. So uh, I got quite a bit of, of information from Catholic University. Uh, and in fact, I, I thought it was a, a pity that uh, the uh, collection uh, really was in such an obscure place in the library. So I uh, actually, at some point, wrote to the uh, American commander of the legitimate order of the Knights of Malta, a, a businessman in um, New York City named William Grace, and pointed this out to him and got a, a um, very nice letter back from him saying that it certainly would be something that uh, the Knights would try to fix. So I went from Washington then to um, uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, I believe it was in Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, to the federal court there. And I had heard that the Knights of the, the the American Knights of Malta were uh, having uh, some sort of dispute and, and battling back and forth, and I was sure that I could find um, much in the way of interesting material there in the court records in federal court in Pennsylvania, and the uh, someone of the court who uh, was uh, very helpful and actually managed to get me. Uh, uh, copies of, of uh, uh, certain documents that uh, were essential. So I, uh, having uh, done this this research and, and uh, traveling around there and, and to other libraries, then I eventually sat down to write this article and to put all the material together. So, Father, you didn't just make stuff out of thin air. You actually spent months uh, digging into source material, researching, trying to find books, and I, and I noticed in even some of the footnotes, you were able to find some of the original letters uh, from some of the czars, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So it sounded like you got quite a bit of material over the course of your journey. To go well, you on. see, you had to because um, there were so many questions uh, about this American organization, so many claims that they had made. Um, it was a um, it was a bit of, of detective work trying to figure out everything. Because, you know, they claim to be a sovereign state. They claim to have this, this uh, extraterritorial jurisdiction. They claim that they were the real order, um, that the order in Rome was not the legitimate order, and so on. So there are all these different claims that you had to uh, deal with, these claims that you had to answer. 
And so for the listener, just so they understand, there is still a legitimate organization of the Knights of Malta that is recognized by the Vatican II Church even. And then there are the spinoff groups um, that all claim to have their lineage to a branch from Russia. Um, so there's almost there, there's two different branches we're looking at today. And before we discuss each one of those branches, now that we've given the listener a background of the material that you got to uh, research this topic, why don't, Father, if you could give us a little history of the order before the Russian controversy and how did it start, what was its purpose, uh, to give the listener some background to this order. Okay, so everyone is is familiar with the Crusades and is uh, uh, familiar with uh, what a a key part that is in the history of the Church. Um, During the uh, time of uh, the Crusades, of course, there was battles between the Christians and the Muslims for uh, the Holy Land, and um, the Christians established themselves in uh, the Holy Land, and then many... um, Christian pilgrims from uh, throughout the West came to to visit uh, Jerusalem. So uh, the uh, Order of Malta, the one that we're, we're talking about, uh, originally was called the Hospitallers of St. John of Jerusalem. They took care of, of um, uh, pilgrims who came to Jerusalem. And since the times were incredibly dangerous, the this organization actually became a military religious order that strikes us as somewhat surprising but um it was necessary and especially in in such a hostile uh, environment so the members of this order uh, bound themselves by the the standard vows of poverty chastity and obedience their apostle was to take care of of um Christians who are going to the Holy Land, but uh, also they had military training, and some served as 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 uh, knights in effect, um, who you know would defend the holy place and who defend pilgrims. The order was approved by the popes. There were a number of other orders like this. It was recognized as as religious orders. Um, are as as uh, uh, exempt from um, certain duties to the local diocesan bishop. Their headquarters was uh, in Rome, and so on. Uh, the Muslims uh, eventually reconquered Jerusalem, so the uh, order uh, had to f- uh, pick up its its uh, roots there, and they moved to the island of Rhodes in the uh, Mediterranean. Uh, and they were very good at, at adapting themselves to different circumstances. They they um, put aside the idea of battling on on land, and then uh, started battling on ships, and and turned into sort of a uh, naval military uh, order. Uh, it became quite internationalized. Christians from all over the world came to uh, join it. Uh, It was divided into different groups that were called tongues, uh, that is to say, language groups. Uh, It acquired uh, uh, property and uh, had a um, way of electing, um, uh, uh, electing those who would run the order. 
um, it, it was considered uh, an order of uh, as well an, uh, to achieve a certain rank in the order. Uh, you had to have a title of nobility. You had to come from a, a noble family. Now that strikes uh, us in our our own age as, as you know the antithesis of what one would expect in the church. But uh, remember this: that uh, it was a fact of society that people who came um, from the uh, upper ranks of society, from the nobility, had uh, obligations, had certain obligations to society in general. So, uh, and uh, part of this was the work in in the way of the defense of Christian society as knights and uh, as as those who would run society. So it was natural that in an order like uh, the uh, uh, Knights of St. John, that the heads would be members of the nobility. Well, uh, sooner or later, uh, the Turks eventually in the 16th century managed to expel the order from the island of Rhodes as well. So they ended up in the island of Malta, and they were given that by uh, Charles V, and so they became known as the Knights of Malta. And they continued their their military um, vocation. Uh, they fought against the awful Barbary pirates and, and uh, tried to get uh, uh, d- defeat the uh, pirates from the uh, uh, coast of North Africa. They tried to rescue Christian galley slaves uh, and so on. They uh, founded priories and, and uh, religious establishments in uh, in Europe. Uh, there, in fact, is, is even a... Um, uh, there's even one of them in uh, London, in the city of London. There's a church of the uh, Knights of Malta. Uh, eventually, their uh, fortunes started to wane because of the different changes in society, and uh, um, finally they were done in, as, as so many uh, institutions were, uh, by a combination of the Protestant Revolt uh, and then eventually by Napoleon. So that that kind of brings them uh, up to the end of the uh, 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century. But it's really it was a, a, a glorious organization. It continues to exist. It has a um, uh, it's uh, still recognized internationally as a sovereign state. Their headquarters is uh, up on one of the hills of of uh, Rome near the uh, uh, Benedictine residence and, and next to a, um, a, a very famous Dominican church, uh, church Santa Sabina. And uh, uh, there's a very famous tourist um, point of the tourist um, uh, visit to that part of Rome where you look through the keyhole in the nights of, in the, um, uh, Priory of the Knights of Malta, and you get a very a beautiful picture, uh, a very beautiful view of uh, St. Peter's, the uh, uh, St. Peter's in Rome. So they, they continue to exist, and now they do um, charitable activities, uh, take care of, of, of uh, pilgrims, and uh, contribute to different war-torn uh, uh, parts of the world try to help people out, and uh, people still are members of the Knights of Malta, and uh, it is considered among Catholic laymen who 
or involved in various charities, a great um, great honor to be appointed an honorary member of the Knights of Malta. And Father, just a little background for the listeners, some of the terms that are used to designate the different positions in the order. Their superior the order was called a, a Grand Master. Then there were different members that were in charge of different regions, uh, and they were called bailiffs, mm-hmm. I believe, bailiffs. Uh, from your yes. article. And the last topic that I think is one of the controversy uh, is this designation of what did it mean to be a protector of the order? Well, uh, you have to step back a little bit. And a um, uh, religious orders in uh, the Catholic Church have uh, a superior general, or in, in this case, a, a grand master, who's the administrative head of the order. He is the actual religious superior of um, uh, uh, those monks or those religious who are members of a religious order. In addition to that, um, the uh, most orders in the church have uh, what is called a, a protector. So uh, it can be a, uh, it's generally a person in uh, some sort of a high ecclesiastical position or occasionally in a high civil position as well, who takes an interest in the work of the order and uh, tries to promote it and tries to promote its, its uh, interests. So, for instance, I was a member of the Cistercian Order, and we had a cardinal protector, and uh, he had ties to uh, our order. He was interested in its spirituality and its work, and in different cases or issues that might come up at the Vatican, he would um, promote the position of the order. So, uh, the... the, Yes? And a protector isn't a member of the order. They're just a beneficiary of the order, correct? Uh, yeah, a benefactor of the order, yes. And uh, so the, the cardinal who um, was the cardinal protector of the Cistercian order was not actually a member of the order. But um, it, it was um, um, a title as well that could be uh, you know, an honorary title, as you would ask someone to be uh, your protector. And sometimes it was was done in uh, the days of kings and emperors. Sometimes the emperor was asked to uh, be the protector of your order as well. So if if you had uh, connections with uh, uh, Franz Joseph uh, Habsburg in Austria, you might ask him to be the protector of your order as well, and and he would promote the interests of your order, and uh, you know perhaps. Uh, contribute generously to uh, uh, your order's fundraising campaigns. (laughs) Okay. So we talked about the order up basically to the turn of the the 18th century. You have the Protestant Revolution, uh, obviously with heads rolling in France uh, in the 1790s. uh, Nobility was declining. So that gets us to this point of controversy here, or this time of controversy in Russia, which started around 1788-1789. And what was this? Uh, or what is this point of contention in Russia uh, in regards to the order? 
Well, the point of contention as far as the story of the American group is basically this, that um, due to uh, different uh, political uh, circumstances in Europe at that time, um, Paul the uh, uh, the, the uh, Tsar of Russia, Paul, Paul I, uh, who, of course, was an Orthodox schismatic, he ended up as a um, uh, becoming the protector of the order and being uh, being becoming involved in the affairs of the uh, order. And the the order had had um, uh, lost its um, uh, power over Malta and was was being. Um, uh, was uh, undergoing difficulties in just about every uh, country in the world. So uh, Paul the Sixth, or excuse me, Paul the First, took an interest in the order's affairs and managed to get himself involved as a uh, uh, as a protector of the order, despite his his status as an Orthodox schismatic. But since he actually wasn't a member. Uh, from a canonical point of view, uh, something like that was not a um, uh, was not really all of that uh, all that strange. So he got involved. He also was he was he was a character. Some people said that he was a, um, a few sandwiches short of picnic, as they would say in in uh, New York, uh, and a little bit delusional. He uh, very much loved uh, fancy ceremonies and fancy titles and fancy uniforms, and of course, uh, being involved with the Order of Malta as a protector, he got to wear all of this uh, very interesting gear. So, in any event, he uh, the the dispute or the the, the issue initially. Uh, was over the question of, of uh, uh, Polish priory. This was uh, transferred to uh, the Tsar's capital at St. Petersburg, and he was very, very generous to this um, uh, this priory. And he uh, uh, promised to leave the Catholic Knights alone, to let them observe their own traditions and their customs and their regulations. So he he had a uh, hands-off policy initially, which is uh, why it was uh, acceptable. Uh, he was invested as a protector of uh, the Order of uh, Malta, and uh, the uh, then we get into the politics of of these different issues in uh, 1789 and division among the members of the order and a great deal of confusion because of uh, the uh, a turbulent political atmosphere in uh, in Europe at the time. So there was a dispute uh, over the suitability of the Grand Master of the order, uh, who um, a man named von Hampesch, and whether or not he was doing what he's supposed to do. Pius VI got involved. Uh, there are further internal divisions in the order. And then the uh, Russians, uh, the Russian knights, decided that, well, to uh, protect themselves, they would elect uh, Paul uh, I as the Grand Master of the Order, which was something 
that was impossible in terms of, of canon law because he wasn't a member of the uh, wasn't a member of the Catholic Church. So uh, he was this Orthodox, is Orthodox Ismatic, uh, correct? That's correct. She is an Orthodox Ismatic, and so uh, there are more disputes between um, the Saint Petersburg Priory and priories uh, elsewhere. Uh, the Pope again got involved and said that the previous Grand Master had been irregularly deposed. Uh, this was uh, invalid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is uh, at this point with the um, uh, the involvement of Paul the First, uh, the schismatic star as as a um, as the Grand Master of the Order of Malta, that the uh, we get into the connection that eventually leads to this American group in the United States. Um, what happened is, is after the czar died, um, basically what happened is that uh, all of the knights uh, of the order uh, swore their uh, obedience to uh, the new Grand Master, uh, popes uh, intervened throughout the 19th century uh, and mentioned the, the status of the Russian czars as uh, something of uh, only as protectors, a purely honorary uh, title, and uh, took uh, command of the uh, or, uh, took the the affairs of the order uh, into their hands, and established the uh, this this uh, uh, priory uh, for their headquarters then on on uh, this this hill in Rome, and so it con- uh, continued uh, to the uh, time of the. Second Vatican Council, and indeed it it continues today. And in this action of the popes recognizing that von Hampisch, von mm-hmm. Hampisch, still the legitimate Grand Master, uh, that was subsequently recognized by the the next czar um, after the death of Paul the First. I think his name was Alexander the First. He recognized that Paul the First was an illegitimate. Uh, claimant to the Grand Master uh, of the Order as well, I believe. Uh, yes, and and his position was that well, uh, this is uh, something that uh, you know we're uh, we as Czar are no longer going to be involved in uh, to the extent that 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 uh, Paul uh, Paul the First was. So that um, uh, pretty much was the. Uh, end of it as regards the uh, canonical issue in uh, Russia, because the 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 Russian government in in effect conceded that well it it was uh, um, the the order recognized by the Pope was the legitimate order. In Russia, they went so far as to actually take away the properties and pretty much suppress completely suppressed the order, didn't they? Uh, Yes, indeed. And uh, so those um, uh, properties were returned to the imperial crown, and uh, so it uh, underwent, in effect, a a civil suppression by the the civil government. 
So uh, that would um, uh, obviously would argue against any continued existence of this organization of Malta in Russia. And remember, it's 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 through um, it's through Russia that this was all. Um, that this American group uh, made its claims and uh, claimed to derive its history. So how did the American organization get started then? Well, the uh, this, of course, is the great mystery. <laughs> like what exactly is the connection to um, what exactly is the connection to Russia? And the um, answer that uh, I came up with is that I really could not find any connection. Uh, This was not only based on uh, my own um, research, but uh, uh, actually there uh, was a lengthy study that was done by some scholars in the order itself. Um, uh, The um, members of, of, of uh, the Rome, Rome-based Order of Malta, uh, who went through all of the documents on uh, Russia and um, analyzed them, them all in a very complete study and said that it, it's, um, there is simply no uh, documentation to support the continued existence of an Order of Malta in Russia. And uh, the, the cherry on top, they said, is that the an official publication put out by the Tsar in uh, St. Petersburg in 1891, um, you know, makes this uh, makes this absolutely clear that it it simply did not exist. Uh, however, if you you can't find the connection there, um, nevertheless, you do find. Uh, you different claims by the American group that um, the order was somehow refounded or continued in the United States. So uh, you find in 1890 some claims that the um, that a man named William Lamb, who is a former um, colonel of the Confederate Army. Uh, was elected the Grand Prior of uh, the Knights of Malta in the United States. Uh, but um, the documentation for this is, is uh, uh, again, very sketchy. And you have all of these, these fantastic claims that, uh, to a continuity that really can't uh, be proved. So when you look up say, the history of, of this, this Colonel Lamb and what he did, etc., you find no reference to a connection with uh, some sort of American priory of the Knights of Malta. So one question leads to another. And then you find Protestant organizations in the United States uh, claiming to be uh, the Knights of, uh, of Malta. Uh, and but uh, again, the uh, the connection uh, between this and um, Russia and the legitimate order of Malta is something that is not documented, cannot be uh, cannot be proved. And the supporters of the American OSJ, this this new branch that has popped out of um, 
I guess, a cave. Uh, they claim, I believe, that Paul I, the Tsar Paul I, um, who we discussed before, was an illegitimate ruler of the order there in Russia anyway, that he supposedly set up what they call hereditary commanders. And somehow Colonel Lamb would be a, because of his lineage, would automatically assume the position as commander of the order, whatever that exactly means. Yes, and the difficulty is that no one has ever been able to prove a connection between Lamb and this uh, Russian, um, the, the, um, and the, um, this organization that supposedly existed in Russia. I mean, the guy was the Confederate colonel and the mayor of Norfolk. And uh, Lamb is not exactly uh, an old Russian name. <laughs> so uh, that's uh yeah if if it been in, had been Lamanov or something like that uh you it might uh get our attention but you can find there's there's absolutely nothing to uh, uh support this and and I did uh, a fair amount of research in in uh, who's who's and and uh newspapers etc managed to get the old microfilms of the New York Times that that talked about lamb but uh you can never find this uh, uh this connection between him and Russia <laughs> and and in any order in the Catholic Church is there any such thing as becoming a hereditary member. Well, one hope not. <laughs> because you're supposed to take a vow of chastity. <laughs> so the 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 idea that you inherit a membership in a religious order through your family is a canonical absurdity. No one would uh, no one would uh, make that claim. And certainly uh, in the historical Knights of Malta, the real group that was uh, uh, approved by the Catholic Church, nothing like that existed. And for membership in any order, is it not true that the individual person themselves have to willingly enter the order uh, if, if you're somehow genetically automatically enrolled? That kind of removes free will. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> To say the least, because a, a um, religious order is supposed to um, present an opportunity to uh, uh, practice the uh, different virtues to their perfection, and uh, that is an, uh, something that's a commitment that you uh, make over and above your uh, the co commitment of uh, uh, that you made as a Christian at your baptism. So uh, you that's something that you you. Uh, freely accept, and and there are uh, that's all governed by the rules and canonical legislation of uh, the church. Uh, you have to make an initiate. You have to um, uh, spend a certain time there in a religious formation, then eventually make uh, uh, make vows, and then it has to be clear that these these vows are freely made. So you can't. Uh, you can't really speak of hereditary membership in a uh, religious order. It's against uh, the nature of it. The most that uh, you could say is that, well, uh, 
and this was a regulation at a certain point in the history of the Knights of Malta, that um, in order to enter the initiative of uh, the order and in order to become a, um, a higher member of, of the order, uh, you had to have a noble background. Uh, and you had to have so much nobility, a certain amount of nobility in uh, your background in order to uh, in order to advance in the order. But simply uh, inheriting membership in the religious order uh, that did not work. That's against the mind of the church. To move on a little bit, or just to finish this point, actually, uh, Paul the First, from your research, didn't even create. Uh, this concept of hereditary commanders, uh, he created something uh, similar to like rights of patronage, like um, hereditary benefactors, which has nothing to do with actually being an actual member. Yeah, there's another, uh, this is another uh, concept in, I don't know about the Eastern uh, systematics, but in uh, canon law in the West, um, there was um, what was called a jus patronatus, uh, that for the appointment to a certain, um, uh, to say certain positions in the church, sometimes a, a, a nobleman or a noble family would have the right to um, appoint, to propose someone for uh, a particular ecclesiastical post. So if you uh, had the uh if we were living in the uh middle ages let us say and we're in, in the um dukedom of uh westchester ohio okay and the uh let's say the duke uh, of the area, let's call him the Duke of Energy, because Duke Energy is big around here, that he has the right to uh, appoint the um, uh, pastor of uh, the parish, to propose the name of, say, the pastor of, of a parish on Ralther Road in, in Westchester. So that that would be the use patronatus, and he would, uh, he could propose someone to become the pastor, and then the bishop of the diocese would have to approve of that. But uh, that was the uh, that was the idea. In other words, the the, the right of appointment. So that is uh, at most what the Russian legislation allowed for that certain families could uh, you know uh, propose certain people to be uh, uh, members of. Um, whatever organization there was. So before we transition to the ecumenical nature of the organization, even from its roots here in the America, I'd like to remind listeners that you're listening to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, James Trumper, and I am joined by Father Anthony Chicago of St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio. Today we've been discussing the OSJ and the OSJ uh, here in America, and I'd like to remind you that Trad Controversies is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. Before we go into how traditional Catholics turn to this organization, when you were looking at its beginnings here in America, of the American OSJ. 
um, to me and some of the the quotes that you include, they sound like a Vatican II all over again, like the beginning of a Vatican II in their ecumenical nature. Yeah, it, uh, and that was something that uh, struck me uh, as extremely strange uh, when I came across this literature uh, because the OSJ, the American OSJ, was holding itself out as a uh, traditional organization, an organization that would appeal to traditional Catholics. Yet in uh, their uh, recent, even in the recent literature, um, uh, published after Vatican II, uh, they uh, spoke in, in uh, using the sort of terms that, that one would expect uh, from some sort of an ecumenical organization, uh, some sort of ecumenical fellowship. Uh, in effect, all members of all religions were uh, permitted to be members of uh, this organization, which was supposedly a Catholic religious order. And that is is uh, very strange that that uh, Protestants of different stripes, Catholics, um, uh, the Orthodox schismatics of different stripes, and the uh, small sects known as old Catholics, that these uh, members of these uh, organizations were all uh, permitted to be members, as it were, on an, e on an equal footing. So that struck me as, as uh, something uh, extremely strange. And um, the uh, it was something one not only discovered in the post-Vatican II material, the organization, but in the uh, writings and in the uh, pronouncements of those who had been involved in uh, this uh, organization earlier in the 20th century as well. Uh, you remember that the uh, Russian... Uh, revolution in 1917 drove the nobility out of Russia, those that they, they didn't slay, and um, the members of, of uh, the different Russian noble families went into exile. Uh, many went into uh, exile in Paris, and some came to the uh, United States. So you had these, these different uh, Russian grand dukes and duchesses uh, floating around. And uh, you find that they had had very strange religious um, uh, ideas about putting together some sort of an ecumenical uh, one-world uh, religion with uh, certain fundamental principles that that all religions could agree on at at, at the, the uh, basis of them, and these uh, people, of course, in turn were uh, tied in. With uh, this this um, uh, uh, interest in uh, in uh, occultism and uh, very odd forms of philosophy that one found at the beginning of the 20th century, the writings of uh, Madame Blavatsky, for instance. So it was all very strange, and you see that these these uh, uh, Russian exiles were involved in this, but these people as well were involved in the American organization known as the, um, as the OSJ. Virtually here, here in 1929, uh, you have a quote from the Times from this Grand Duke Alexander, who had been the head of 
the OSJ here in America is an entity that's a splinter or, or uh, a startup group different from the Roman OSJ that would have been validly recognized at the time. And, and the quote reads, to call into active life the religion of love, which in time will replace all existing religions, but meantime will spiritualize them and withdraw them from their present condition of gross materialism. And he goes on to say to spread great fundamental truths which are the same for all faiths and for all nations, and so to build up that universal brotherhood which Christ came into this world to establish, to bring about a conscious union of human souls with the soul of the universe, God, who is the spirit of supreme, and he goes on. But that sounds like Pope Francis. I mean, that's Vatican II, and that's in 1929. Yeah, these these ideas were floating around, and remember that that's about the time of the encyclical Mortalium Animos, too, which condemned these ideas. So uh, he, uh, so they were very much uh, in the uh, these universalist ideas are very much in uh, the atmosphere, and the people like uh, Alexander, who did have some connections with the. Um, uh, OSJ in the United States and who's cited in their literature had all of these, uh, these oddball ideas. There, there's been a whole, looks like host of splinterings here of the American OSJ organization in and among itself over the last 60, 70 years. And I found it interesting because in, in their splintering, uh, while they consider themselves an autonomous order you know, uh, not subject to the Pope, they turned to the, you know, the United States federal courts to solve their different uh, controversies. Uh, yes, I guess the, the courts on the island of Malta perhaps weren't available to them. So they they, <laughs> they had to go somewhere for it. Um, <laughs> the um, the one figure we, we should mention, the dominating figure from the time of Alexander on, uh, in, in the 1920s was uh, Charles Pichel. And uh, Pichel was a, um, uh, he lived to a ripe old age. And he was the one after, who, uh, after Vatican II sold so many um, uh, traditional Catholics on the idea that uh, the uh, Knights of St. John were a legitimate order. So he did, he did uh, his um, uh, headquarters was in a, a place in Pennsylvania called Shikshini, uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, he was uh, the, the man who promoted this uh, organization. He was um, a, a married man. Uh, he, he had married at a certain point how he could be the a member of a religious order and be married at the same time, of course, is one of those um, uh, canonical uh, canonical mysteries. Uh, he was the one who put together all these these different documents and published all of these different claims about the continuity of this organization in the United States from the um, 
uh, organization uh, in in uh, in Russia under uh, Paul the First, and he managed to get himself involved um, in the fifties and sixties with all sorts of um, different religious organizations: Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Old Catholics. Um, the old Catholics rather loved this organization because it gave them a certain amount of uh, legitimacy. And then finally, uh, after the Second Vatican Council, he was able to draw in um, uh, a good number of, of Catholics who were uh, upset with the different changes. So it was, it was he, over the period of maybe... Um, 40 years, at least 40 years or so, he was the one who kept this outfit um, going and caused it um, uh, to be seen as a, a legitimate um, operation after the Second Vatican Council by uh, many traditional Catholics. And he, in the traditional Catholics, were accepted as members alongside of from my understanding and reading your article, old Catholics, Protestants, and, and somehow they were members of a Catholic religious order? Uh, yeah, this was the, this was Pichel's idea. And in fact, you would see the promotional literature, you'd see some of these, these common investiture ceremonies where you would have these um, traditional Catholics uh, and some traditional Catholic clergy participating in the same um, a sort of investiture ceremony with uh, people from all these different odd religions. Uh, for some reason, the fantastic claims of um, uh, Pichel and and uh, the Knights uh, blinded so many people to the fact that underneath it was, in fact, a an ecumenical organization. And a lot of the traditional Catholic priests, it seems to me in my time, that got hoodwinked into this organization. It sounded great. They could get their jurisdiction. They didn't have to deal with the Pope issue. Uh, sooner or later, I think most of them uncovered the, the dirty laundry in the closet and subsequently left the organization. I don't. I think Father Wathen, before he died, left the organization even... And he was a huge proponent of it for many years. Oh yes, he he was one of the he he was definitely one of the the big defenders. Father Gomer de as I said, he was the really the prototrad of prototrad priests in the United States. Um, he um, swallowed their claims, and he was a canon lawyer of all things. Um, uh, so they really must have talked a, a good line to him. But eventually, he figured them out. Uh, there were. Um, a number of, of um, priests who did um, uh, research into the, the background of uh, the organization, a number of who uh, spread the word that one really could could have nothing to um, nothing to do with it. We actually ended up with um, because of the uh, Father Wathen was a, a priest of Louisville, the Diocese of Louisville. Uh, which is not all that far away from here. He had um, a considerable influence in the trad movement in northern Kentucky and also in Cincinnati at the beginning because he was basically the only priest who was saying the traditional Mass and uh, criticizing the Mass of uh, Paul VI. So we had a number of people in the area who 
uh, were uh, members actually of uh, uh, of his organization. And eventually, they got around to um, uh, reading, uh, you know, different critiques of of the organization, including my own, and uh, decided that they really could have nothing to do with it because it was uh, so obviously fraudulent. But it was it was something that was. Uh, uh, at least well known for a while in the traditional movement in the United States. I remember growing up seeing the uh, flag of the Knights of Malta because we went to a chapel uh, that was supported by Tom Nelson from Pan. And I remember as a child, the priest would not stand behind the pulpit. And I always thought that as odd, but I, it never really hit me why. You know, I think as traditional Catholics, they tended to just, oh, Father thinks it's okay, uh, must be fine. Or in this case, uh, they took Tom Nelson's opinion uh, and ran with it. But it seems as it's slowly come to public light, people ran away from it. And and, uh, ultimately, I I, uh, don't know what finally... um... Uh, Tom Nelson's position on it uh, was. I had uh, dealings with um, Tom, very friendly dealings with Tom for a number of years after I had, well, after I had had published my critique of the Knights of Malta. And I don't uh, uh, exactly recall to what extent he um, uh, continued to be a member uh, member of the organization. The other interesting connection with the Knights is, is that Father Wathen, uh, because of his involvement, there's also a uh, uh, strain of Fenianism in, in uh, the organization, um, because Fa- Father Wall- uh, Wathen was very much into the teachings of Father Feeney. So that, uh, that was a, a, another tangential issue uh, tied in with uh, the Knights. I, uh, one hears next to nothing um, about them anymore. I'd, I'd heard that there was a... Uh, uh, priest in California, uh, maybe two years ago, who was induced into um, uh, becoming a, a member of their organization. Uh, 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 a priest who, I believe, celebrates Mass in, in uh, Garden Grove, California. And uh, he, I think, became a part of the organization. I don't know if he still is a, a member of their organization, but that actually was a bone uh, uh, of contention and, and uh, a controversy among the members of his congregation because uh, a number of people had come across my study and Dr. Julio Pro's study and figured out that this was not a uh, good choice, as they would say. Uh, when last heard from, the, art- the organization was um, operated by a, a man named Dr. John Grady, who I believe lives down in uh, uh, Tennessee, but uh, one does not really hear that much more about the organization. But it's an interesting uh, topic to uh, discuss, I think, in on trad controversies, precisely because it is a part of the uh, early history of the traditionalist movement in uh, the United States. And, uh, you know, one that had uh, was tied in very intimately with this question of, of obedience to the diocesan hierarchy, obedience to the Pope, and the question of jurisdiction. And I think we'll, we'll kind of end the wrap the show up here 
wrap the show off with the OSJ's claims in relation to canon law. And one of the first things I'd like to address is their claim of being in a, basically an autonomous orator, um, not subject to the authority of the Pope. Has there ever been anything in Catholic history, any order that was not under the direct supervision of the Pope? Clearly not, because the the, the uh, Pope is the head of the hierarchy, and a religious order, any religious order or religious congregation, uh, is subject to the authority of the hierarchy. It's a creation of ecclesiastical law, uh, that it, it's given its existence by ecclesiastical law, and the Pope is the um, uh, master, as it were, of ecclesiastical law. So uh, if uh, you're a Catholic religious order, by that fact you are uh, subject to the Pope. And so then they would come back, or supporters of the order would say, well, they're only subject to faith and morals. To me, that claim would go directly against the dogmatic pronouncement of Vatican I as the Pope as the supreme head of the Church. Well, exactly, and uh, but also don't forget that the uh, question of morals, the question of conduct, is when the Pope approves a religious order, uh, he uh, he is approving or disapproving of the laws uh, according to which its members must conduct themselves. So even uh, even there, obviously, he would have a, a supreme, he would have a jurisdiction over uh, what is done in a religious order. The um, uh, another consideration is is uh, this that for an order to go and to uh, operate in a diocese. Uh, where there is a bishop appointed by the Pope, there's a certain procedure that uh, one has to uh, observe. And uh, this is all, you know, tightly regulated by canon law. So you you couldn't say that, well, uh, I'm a um, member of of the Knights of Malta, and I'm just going to go and set up a public chapel in your uh, diocese, you know, say that to the Archbishop of Philadelphia, and there's nothing you can do about it because uh, uh, we're a uh, religious order. And of course, that all, all of that that contradicts uh, various pre- um, uh, provisions of, of uh, canon law that allow or that, that specify that the bishop of a diocese is the one who has the, the say-so about um, uh, public oratories and about uh, the access of uh, members of the diocese to religious ceremonies by religious orders. Because if you had all these self-started orders that didn't need the authority of Rome or fall under the authority of Rome, essentially that would legitimize chaos uh, because you could have a chapel here saying mass that's not under your diocese and the diocesan church or parish right next door. Yeah, and all of that stuff is people who realize that it's all regulated. I mean, preaching is regulated. Um, the uh, you know you you can't uh, have permission to preach to the public of the diocese unless you have the permission of the diocesan bishop. 
So, uh, you know, just about everything. You can't even have a procession outdoors. Um, so uh, the reason that um, an outfit like the OSJ was able to uh, hoodwink uh, so many people at the beginning is that people aren't familiar with these different uh, points of, of uh, church law. So, uh, you know, you get uh, you had, uh, many priests, uh, many members of the laity who were sort of wowed by this idea that they somehow could be uh, exempt. And, and then from a canonical standpoint, a religious per individual is one that's taken the vows of uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so here you have so the supposed head of the order, Charles Pichel, uh, and I don't know about Mr. Grady, but they're married men, weren't they? Yeah, and they they um, hold themselves out as uh, you know members of the uh, uh, members of this this uh, religious order, and that is something that uh, you know would be impossible. And that there are are rules um, um, governing what makes for the validity of one's membership in a religious order. You have to make a, a canonical division. And that's that's there. There are rules that um, uh, rules that govern that 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 uh, regulate it and close novitiate and uh, uh, vows for temporary vows for a certain period of time. And only then after after that, solemn vows. So all of this um, legislation gets um, uh, gets put aside. You can't take vows as religious if you're married. <laughs> It's uh, quite forbidden, <laughs> and it invalidates them because you can't you can't keep the vow. So I think this kind of wrapping up the whole topic of the OSJ is just another example of what I see out there. I would say the, the another chapter in Catholic mythology. Uh, people out of ignorance, out of desperation, kind of made things up in the late sixties, seventies, uh, instead of going to the books. Uh, in their desperation to justify what they were doing. And what they were doing was good in the standpoint of holding to tradition, but their means of justification or their justification for it was incorrect. Uh, Yes, indeed. And and, uh, the... Uh, you know, a lot of these people were snookered. I mean, who knows about the ins and outs of canon law? And I mean, if if I have to go digging through several libraries and end up in an attic at Catholic University to figure out all this nonsense about Paul the First, um, you know, there's there there are a number of of obstacles that you have to overcome. But um, yeah, if you're if you're common sense person on the face of it, it doesn't sound right that, um, uh, you know, uh, somehow there would be a way for you to be completely uh, exempt from the uh, authority of the diocesan bishop. But again, it's it's a way, it was a way of, a, a, a way sort of a, a grasping at straws uh, that um, people had uh, to resolve the authority and to resolve the Pope issue. That um, you know what was being commanded was done by the Pope, and uh, it was obviously bad. Well, we're not subject to his authority, and this organization allows us to be not subject to his authority. But that, of course, is is a uh, that's a myth. 
and uh, one that never can be sufficiently denounced. It's, uh, it's understandable at the beginning of the traditionalist movement that people would grasp uh, at straws like this, but uh, you know, in the long term, it's not. Um, uh, it's uh, impossible to reconcile that with Catholic theology and canon law. Well, Father, as as a young person in in tradition, uh, as a traditional Catholic, I can say from my personal standpoint, I really appreciate your invaluable research bringing this topic to light and dispelling all these shrouds that were laying over the top of it. And uh, I appreciate your hard work, and hopefully with the show, and I, I definitely would refer people to your article titled History, Canon Law, and the Order of St. John, which you can find at traditionalmass.org, which gives a complete overview of the topic, and I highly suggest reading it, that with this show and and reading that article, hopefully people won't be snookered uh, in this organization or other organizations that may arise um, similar to it. So as we close out this episode, we, we've really discussed the OSJ, the history of it, some of the um, interesting points of the topic. And I want to thank Father Chicada for his time and just ask, is there anything you'd like to summarize or add to the topic before we close? No, but uh, I think it's it's simply this, that um, you have to be remember as a, a traditional Catholic the... Um, uh, that one principle is that the unknown uh, often passes for the marvelous, and in fact, that's that's a, a quotation from the Roman writer Tacitus that I, I quote at the uh, beginning of my article on the OSJ. The unknown often passes for the marvelous, and uh, that <clears throat> if something. Uh, seems too good to be true, uh, chances are it's not true. <laughs> and we find that uh, uh, again and again, uh, unfortunately, the situation in the post-Vatican II Church. So, And it is, is uh, research in history and theology and canon law that will uh, enlighten us as to uh, what the, the practice and the teaching of the Church is on so many of these different matters. And, and that really ties back to how we started the show uh, with 132 footnotes. Readers can go to your article and see the source material. They can check it out for themselves. Uh, so often I've found these pamphlets floating around uh, of people supporting OSJ or other topics, and they have no footnotes. They have no quotations. There's no source material. And to me, that if there's no footnotes, there's no witnesses, uh, no authorities they're turning to for answers, uh, they're probably not legitimate writers. Father, uh, thanks again for joining us for this month's show, and we look forward and hope to talk to you soon. All right, God, uh, God bless you, and uh, have a good continuation of your summer, all of you. God bless. Take care, Father. Bye now. If you have any questions for Father Chicada or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at controversies at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to Father Chicada. We would like to take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. 
All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, that you would please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I'm James Schrepfer. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.